Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussein. And we are into season three of The Pod Doctors. We've had a chance to take a little bit of a break and get a couple of episodes under our belt. A couple of good cases. Yep, some cases. we got some good surgeries coming up. Uh, but today, we're going to go, I think, through some peripheral nerve basics, talk about some of the pathology that we run into with yeah. regard to the peripheral nervous system. Yeah, a couple of the exams we do, just a general overview, nothing too specific, but at least you'll have a baseline on some of the things we see uh, as uh, podiatric physicians. So nerve basics. So the nervous system is broken down into two major parts, your peripheral and your central nervous system. Your central nervous system, your brain, your, your brain stem, your, your spinal cord, and then your peripheral nervous system all those tiny little branches coming off your, your, your spinal cord, sensory, touch, uh, smell, sight, hearing, uh, your, your five senses. And they're your conduit to the world. Um, without them, you're, you know, you're kind of just a living vegetable. You know? So the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system work together. So a lot of the exams we do, although we're working on the periphery, do play in part to determine if there's any type of central nervous system or peripheral nervous system blockage or problem going on. And um, as you know, you know your your body works together. So uh, as you can see, your sensory input, you know, from sight, touch, smell, goes through your brain and whatnot, and comes back out. Say you're 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 looking and you see a duck flying right at you. You know you're seeing it, but then you have to respond, and that's how you duck to avoid things. <laughs> you know. So yeah, we're we're testing both motor and and sensory when we're doing our our full nerve exams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where the two meet is your spinal cord. Your peripheral nervous system um, are the spinal nerves coming off your spinal cord, and your spinal cord is part of your central nervous system. The spinal cord is important because if you actually pay attention to what's injured, you can kind of determine what's going on. So the uh, general overview, general anatomy of your spinal cord, your 
posterior aspect and your anterior aspect, they make up different parts. So most commonly, your nervous system that involves the motor function is in the anterior aspect. Your motor pathway is in the front. And then your posterior aspect is your sensory aspect. And then your uh, you have uh, ventral roots and your uh, dorsal roots that are coming across here. Your ventral root being the anterior aspect, providing the motor function. And then your your ventral roots coming, oh, sorry, and then dorsal your dorsal roots, roots yeah. coming off the backside, providing the sensation uh, coming off back here. And this right here is your little dorsal root ganglion. They come together, they form the spinal nerve, and depending on what part is impinged with like, you know, slip disc, nerve impingements, um, fractures. Um, Radiculopathy. Radiculopathies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can kind of determine what's the most likely outcome of. And, and uh, the level that we're most concerned with, obviously, is L4, L5, S1. You know, that's that's the level, those are the lumbar levels and sacral levels that produce the majority of our peripheral lower extremity nerves. So here is what a nerve looks like in cross section. You never want to see this, but yeah. when you do see this. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great um, cartoon of, of what, uh, what, what the anatomy looks like that we're running into when we do the surgery on these nerves. Yeah, so you're looking at these nerves. This is the perineurium. The epineurium is the most important layer of providing that sheath. The perineurium, sometimes uh, what they talk about is when you're dropping your steroid shot, if you can get your steroids to, to get that to uh, flare up or balloon out or parachute out, that's the, your, your ideal, but obviously um, everyone has their own techniques. The nerve breaks down to small little fascicles and each of these fascicles have a perineurium which wraps these fascicles. Sometimes when we're doing nerve repairs, you know, those microscopic cases, you're literally repairing that perineurium back together or the epineurium, depending on uh, how big that nerve is. And, and think of it like a coaxial cable. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's very similar. Yeah. Oh, when you're looking at these in surgery, I always feel like they look like um, those, uh, you know, those soft egg rolls that you see, you get from like uh, the, those uh, yeah, yeah, with Chinese the, with the rice paper. Yeah, the rice papers. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of see those little carrots mm -hmm. running through them, the little vessels running through them. I mean, that's a gross description. Well, and, and that would be in a, in a normal yeah. looking nerve. Normal. You know, yeah. when you see some of these diabetic nerves, that have significant fibrosis and, and thickening, yeah. uh, glycosylation of some of those tissues. They they look almost fat, degenerative. Uh, the epineurium can get scarred and fibrotic. And, they almost and look like fatty tissue. Yeah, it, it's yeah. they look completely different. So when you yeah. see that beautiful glistening white, multiple fascicular nerve, you know that, that that's a pretty. It's a gorgeous structure. It really yeah. is a beautiful structure. But when it gets diseased, it can look completely different. Yeah, so all of this breaks down and all of this uh, contains your nerve fibers. You have unmyelinated fibers, myelinated fibers, and in different variations um, depending on functionality. And, and myelinated meaning an insulated nerve. So yes. it would be an insulated nerve root, right? Yeah, so your peripheral nervous system, you have myelination using Schwann cells. Your central nervous system, you have myelination using oligodendrocytes. Your oligodendrocytes can, you know, wrap up to like 50 of them. Your Schwann cells only wrap individually. And the important part of this is that it's your, I don't know, your speed bridge, uh, whatever you want to say. If you have unmyelinated nerves or nerves who are being pathologically unmyelinated, you have slower conduction velocity. And the more myelinated your nerve is, the faster it goes. Think of it almost like uh, skipping across there rather than running through it. Mm -hmm. So when you have a disease process that destroys that myelin, myelin sheath, yeah, yeah you, you get severe pathology, right? Yeah, so different classifications of nerve injury. This is where the, the procedures, the surgeries, the, the repairs kind of uh, break down. So your basic nerve has the... 
epineurium, perineurium, endoneurium, everything intact, and then your axon running through the center of everything. Your neuropraxia, your first grade of injury, uh, that's when you have everything intact on the outside, but the axon has been disrupted. That is your... It's your, it's your recoverable injury. Yeah. It's your Sunderland 1, your neuropraxia. Th- those are injuries that the nerve is typically going to recover from on its own. It doesn't require any intervention. Yeah. Uh, the nice thing about the uh, injuries in neuropraxia is it's, it's a partial injury. It's not a complete mm-hmm. uh, injury. There's no gapping. It's more like a, a crush injury, your classic like Saturday palsy. You fall asleep on your arm, yeah. you get that pressure, and your arm falls asleep for a couple hours, wakes up afterwards. Common things that we might see is like ski boot injuries, you know, when, uh, when I was um, mm-hmm. up in the north. Common to see, you know, patient wore a ski boot, my foot fell asleep, you know, I don't know what happened. The boot was too small, or you were moving around too much, or it was compression or swelling or whatever Just might didn't happen. Fit right, yeah, yeah. Common things with like dislocation injuries, real common in like a common pronoun nerve. I'm saying common pronoun um, in uh, elbow dis- dislocation for your ulnar nerve. You know, right. we used to see that, and we had to you know pop that back in place and. And we see that change with, with bad tip fit fractures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ankle dislocations. You know, if you don't if you don't relocate that joint quickly, you can end up causing more permanent damage. But usually, it's a it's a neuropraxia. Uh, the next level of injury is your axonotomesis. So there's different variations of this. Biggest thing is that the axon has been severed uh, due to a physical injury, a traction injury, um, some type of injury that has caused that to um, be you know, your, your pathways. Yeah, your subject pathways. Yeah, so yeah. You're, you're sending electric signal, but that, that, that end point isn't reaching where it needs to. So common things like this are, your, you know, uh, total knee arthroplasties, your common pronoun nerve. Traction injury. Um, that traction injury. Mm-hmm. And I was looking up articles and stuff on that. They said uh, it's estimated between 0.1% to 4% of, of injuries. And I think that's underreported. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, think, I think you know, people are like, oh, it's, it's more just, common than that. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it, it it's gets, a tough thing to, to talk about because when people are talking about, oh, you know, this could be uh, the nerve injury causing that, uh, that pain that you're feeling, or or it could be the surgery or the repair. Even if you're talking four percent, you're talking thousands of these a year because yeah. of the number of total knees that are done in the United States. It's a it's a relatively large number. Yeah, and it's definitely undertreated too. Because right. a lot of patients show up. And I'm, I mean, you see this more. They haven't been diagnosed, so they don't know what's wrong. The surgeon hasn't quite identified it, and or or is assuming that it's just going to get better on its own. Yeah, I would say it's so, uh, there's certainly a percentage that can get better on their own because it's just an, it's a neuropraxia. But if you get to the point where where now you've got scarring of the nerve and you, you're now in axonotmesis, you know that that's not going to necessarily get better on its own. If you're eight nine months down the line and you're still having symptoms, yeah. You want to address it because it's not going to get better. Yeah, there's a portion of these that will heal on heal on their own, and, and they go through what's called Wallerian degeneration. Well, that that ain't going to usually heal on its own. That's where it shrivels up and goes away. <laughs> I mean, it'll shrivel up and go away, and then after that, it'll start growing in behind it. Right? Hopefully, if you still hopefully. have the architecture around it. Yeah, uh, if the yeah. if the endoneurium is intact, mm-hmm. the ideal situation is it's going to follow that original pathway. One millimeter per day is mm-hmm. the goal, and Pretty much watches heal up, but if the nerve is scarred internally, like in grade, it, this grade, your grade four neuromesis, yeah, ooh, yeah, that's tough. You got a conduction blockade. That's not likely to get better. 
the grade five, obviously, you you basically got a scarred nerve yeah, ending. That's your it's nerve not attached anymore. Yeah, right. that's two separate portions yeah. of that nerve. Uh, lacerations, open fractures, gunshot wounds, motor so, vehicle accidents. So that's where you got your grafting. Up. You have to. Yeah. yeah. There's no way around it. Right. Because those are the ones that they'll involute on themselves or right. become. You know. You end up with painful neuromas. CRPS. Yeah, it's bad news. So here's a quick overview of Wallerian degeneration. This is the ideal situation. The nerve is injured, it, it kind of heals in behind it, the pathway, the endoneurium is still intact, and it kind of goes down that conduit growing, hopefully back to its functional muscle or skin or, or wherever it's going to. Now, this is when you have complete severance. That nerve is trying to heal and it's throwing these branches out, these sprouts out, and if that nerve isn't able to find its pathway, it come, turns into itself and becomes this painful stump neuroma. And those little green dots on the muscle, those are the motor end plates. And yeah. if you've lost those motor, those motor end plates will go away permanently after about 11, 12 months. Yeah. So if you've got a, a motor injury, you've got up to a year to do something. But realistically, you've got nine or 10 months. Yeah, because you have you, to imagine that has to heal also. You, you've got to graft it. Or, or do a a, uh, a nerve transfer to be able to save the, the motor end plates. If you don't stimulate those motor end plates, they're going to go away permanently, and then that muscle is basically going to shrivel up. Yeah. So a couple of the tests, a couple of the um, um, uh, physical exam things that we do in office, your um, reflux hammer. So we're texting, or texting the central nervous system when we're doing this, and peripheral nervous system when we're doing this. Both are working in part on this. The reflex hammer, you, you hit the patella, you hit the Achilles, and we're trying to get a normal flexion response. Now, if it's hyperreactive, it's your central nervous system that's been uh, injured. Could be an upper motor, upper upper motor, motor neuron, neuron yeah. issue, right? You kind of mm-hmm. see that, that fasciculation sometimes. And if you get a very low response, that's your peripheral nervous system, that's the lower motor neuron. And those are things that we're kind of diagnosing. Luckily, most of the time, these things are pretty uh, straightforward. And luckily, we don't have to see too much of that kind of stuff. Um, another test that we do in, in children and adults alike, uh, if we're suspicious of any type of upper motor neuron problems, is the Babinski, Babinski reflex. So real simple, you kind of strum your thumb or a tool under the heel. And children, usually up to the age of like, you know, 9, 10, 11 months, they'll have a natural response where yeah, they flare up. Flare them. Mm-hmm. And, and as we get older, that response gets the exact opposite. And the natural response is to flare down. You kind of curl those toes. If we see something different, obviously, we're looking at some type of neurological problem. Another common test that we do, we'll probably do this all the time, your Sims-Weinstein. So Sims-Weinstein is a monofilament that we use. It's, I don't know, whatever pressure gauge it is. It's a logarithmic scale, yeah. which which is problematic for a lot of reasons. And, and also that monofilament can break down over time. And so yeah. if you're not replacing these routinely, yeah. you're not getting the same stimulus. And so I think it's a rough and ready test. It's certainly something we use. But there's a technique to it, and monofilaments are not indestructible. Yeah, a lot of the times down. when we go to the, like these conferences, they'll give us like one of those fancy, you know, things that you kind of twist out and it saves the monofilament. But yeah. obviously, when you're using it, you're bending it, so it right. made no sense to me. In our drawers, we have like the little packs with multiple, you yeah. know, hundreds of them in there, and they're and they're they're disposable. Yeah, but uh, you know, they're still it's a logarithmic scale. You can yeah. have patients who have enough neuropathy to end up with an ulcer and still be able to feel this. That, yeah. That's been proven. So, you know, I don't rely on these exclusively. Um, yeah. I, I really like the Wartenberg wheel. Yeah, I got that coming wheel. up. Yeah, yeah, good. I yep. think that that can be uh, certainly more effective for determining sharp sensation, which if you've lost 
uh, you know, can can lead to ulcers and other problems. So, so when you're doing your Wartenberg wheel, what are you expecting the patients to respond with, and what what is well, your baseline? What I'll do you set it on up? their hand first, like their wrist, uh, wrist or hand, and and just say this is what this this is what the sharp side feels like, and then you flip it over and you and you just touch them with the dull, yeah. uh, blunt end, and you know you're following dermatomal patterns. I want to I want to study the the fibular nerve distribution. I want yeah. to study the tibial nerve distribution. And then you can even break it down to deep fibular, superficial fibular. You can you can study the saphenous and the sural nerve yeah. distributions with that. So you're using that to determine can they feel sharp sensation? Can they distinguish that from dull? And a lot of folks who have diabetic peripheral neuropathy or who have entrapment syndromes mm-hmm. are going to fail that test. If they've got a mononeuropathy, let's say one nerve got stretched, like their superficial fibular nerve from an ankle injury. Yeah. You may find that the whole that whole yellow area, the superficial perineal superficial fibular, which is L four, L five S one, that that may be out completely. Yeah, I, I told specific. you about that case, right? Yeah, Where, yeah, you had an interesting one that came up. So a couple of days ago, almost Friday, um, I had a patient. She was um, post op. We did a lateral ankle ligament repair, uh, prono injuries, ago, though, right? She is three four months out. Nope, just kidding. She's over a month out. So, oh, but her injury was. Oh, the injury is old. The injury yeah, is very old. It's right. a couple years old. It's just been progressively getting worse. So, you know, she had the dislocating peroneals, subluxating peroneals. So I'm like, all right, let's go and repair this, you know, uh, the full shebang. And she's doing great. The ankle isn't bothering her so much. But um, so she, I wasn't able to see her. She called in, set up a telehealth visit. And the telehealth. She, had, she was exposed to COVID. And um, so I'm like, all right, going through the exam. So this is, you know, a first level difficulty that we're going through, telling her. The, the patient doing the exam on themselves. On herself. <laughs> so I'm running through everything. First, we had, you know, yeah. she was having pain, you know, the top of her foot in the back. Of COVID. Yes. Yeah, exactly. New new yeah. medicine. Yeah. So doing the exam, I'm ruling out obvious things, infection, DVTs, blood clots. And I'm like, all right, let's do a neurological exam. Because common uh, injury with a ankle sprain is traction neuritis of the superficial peroneal nerve. Sure. So we start from the top, work our way down. She hits that superficial peroneal nerve, you know, doing our, our, our tenals and things, you know, strum test. And all of a sudden, she's like, the top of my foot is so tingly. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I cannot touch that foot. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. all right. Funny way of diagnosing superficial peroneal nerve injury, but it was it was it was masked by the original injury that. So that that's a traction ankle. injury that probably happened when she first injured her leg yeah. and her ankle. Yeah, yeah. of course. And, and it just takes time for it to expose itself. Yeah, not, not unusual at all. Can take a year sometimes. Yeah, can take eight ten months before patients realize. Yeah, this is this is something that's bothering me. That happens twenty four seven. Doesn't yeah. have anything to do with weight bearing status. And you know, you start to you start. Perking your ears up when you hear that dis- that description, it's very distinct. Yeah. Yeah, an odd way of diagnosing it, but it is something that's easily missed, you know. But if you know what you're looking for, you'll find it. So, uh, for example, if we were doing that Wartenberg wheel, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm running over all the dermatomes, and I hit that superficial peroneal nerve. It could be either hypersensitive or, uh, or more or commonly, just just completely numb. numb. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. yeah. They're like, oh, I can feel it. It's like, but it's like it's like the smooth side. You're not. It's I don't dull, feel the, yeah. the sharp. It doesn't feel like the other side. Yeah, you always want to compare it to, to the uh, yeah. the other. I usually do the uh, the saphenous nerve because that's mm-hmm. a very very low chance of uh, getting caught or the forearm is another spot depending on how bad the neuropathy is or nerve injury is. Right. Um, tenel sign. This one is tried and true. Uh, we use this quite often. So your tenels or belows, depending on uh, the the sensation, um, common with you know tarsal tunnel 
um, real common in carpal tunnel. I mean, that's uh, your, your go-to. So the Tunnel sign, what it is, you're tapping on where the nerve is impinged, right? Or where the nerve is injured. Originally, he was using it. Tunnel, the guy who described this, was using it to monitor nerve healing as mm -hmm. the nerve was recovering. Um, but we use it uh, today primarily to test entrapment, potential entrapment sites. And yeah. so when you tap that and you get that zinger, that electric shock, yeah, the electric shock into the radiating out into the the periphery, uh, that's a like that's a likely entrapment site. Yeah, uh, real simple, truly diagnostic. I mean, it's a simple test um, because sometimes we'll get like MRIs and all these things. But how easy is it to see a compression injury on a nerve? It's I really mean, hard. Nerves are, are super thin, like spaghetti. Sometimes you'll see the MRIs will show changes in the muscles that are fed by that nerve. You'll mm -hmm. see fibrosis in the muscle, yeah, fatty deposition. Um, yeah, and and that can be an indication that there's a chronic injury. That's a long term effect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, EMG NCV studies. So in EMG, we're looking at uh, the speed of the response. Um, well, EMG, we're looking at the background. Electrical activity of the muscle, the nerve connection. How quickly? Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, I got the backwards. We're looking at the speed, right? <laughs> so there, there's a natural electrical background waveform that you get when you put an electrode in any muscle. Yeah, and it and it should be a pretty nice waveform. If it starts to look sawtooth or mm. become fascicular, then you know the nerve feeding that muscle is impinged or irritated, or there's something wrong with it. And then the conductivity aspect of it, the nerve conduction aspect of it, that's what you're looking for. That's what you're talking about, the slowing. Yeah. And you'd want to look for that slowing across a joint or across an area where there's there's a natural impingement. So mm -hmm. if it was the, the wrist, you want to see the slowing between the forearm and the hand. Yeah. If for us in the ankle level, it's, it's common between the lower leg and the foot where you're worried about the tibial nerve getting entrapped in the tarsal tunnel. So these are simple tests that we can do to actually quantify the um, the impingement and hopefully you know figure out exactly what level it's impinged. If the if the if the investigator is good at that test, they can hopefully localize the nerve lesion and give you information on where you need to spend most of your time if you're going to operate on that patient. Oftentimes, though, this test is normal. Yeah. Or read as normal in patients who have symptoms, and that's not. To say that the patient's malingering or, or is it's all in their head, this is simply a test that has limits. And you can have pathology that doesn't get picked up by this test. And that and I think of that as a good thing necessarily because the patient has global health of their peripheral nervous system for the most part. Yeah. If we can still isolate that they've got a problem we can fix surgically, we can do that and know that the nerve's likely going to respond. But you know, patients need to understand that hey, uh, I may get a negative, I may get a normal response from yeah. this test, but it doesn't mean, uh, you know, it's all in my head. I, I, if I have symptoms, I have symptoms. Yeah. yeah. And last thing we do is uh, nerve fiber density, a little punch biopsy. We're trying to rule out small fiber nerve disease. Right. And uh, real common with like diabetes, lupus, HIV. Idiopathic, small yeah. fiber. And the, the thing that's frustrating about small, it's funny that that coin is, it looks like a, Peso. I, I don't um, know what that is. I think it's a... It's certainly not a U.S. coin. I think it's a Canadian... Could be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the interesting thing about small fiber peripheral neuropathy is, is you know, I go to this pain management conference every year and, and hoping to hear new information about some treatment or 
or a better way of diagnosing this. And, and uh, unfortunately, I've been disappointed year yeah. after year. There's a couple papers out talking about like... Uh, Immunoglobulin therapy is yeah. one. There, there's a few things. That I was are, talking about where they were saying that you can get post-release, um, your triple nerve releases, where you get a little initial hyperemia to reinvigorate those small fibers. But, uh, you know, that's one or two papers. It's nothing crazy. Yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to understand why this happens in yeah. some people. And... You know what we can do about it. A lot of the treatments options for this are just numbing the pain, which is well, a shame. Or, or, or like, yeah, it's simply just since symptomatic treatment. Yeah, symptomatic. You know, so we're, we're doing, you know. So this test gives you a diagnosis, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean we have an answer for it. Yeah. So what's happening is we send this off. The pathologist looks at it, and what you should see is these small, tiny, tiny nerve fibers, which come mm. and innervate the skin um, in a normal adult. Um, but as you know, you get the small fiber neuropathy, those nerve fibers, you know, uh, wear away. And um, that's not what you want to see. You want to see healthy, healthy nerves coming up to the epidermis and onwards. So you should be able to literally, the, these guys will count them yeah. in that in that one sample. Yeah. Per and, square millimeter or whatever. Yeah, it ends and, up being. the average is usually around seven. If you, you want it to be higher than seven. Yeah. Uh, if it's less than seven, if it's like three or four, you've got moderate. Uh, small fiber neuropathy, and if it's zero or one, you've got severe. So, our different treatment options for all of these—they're all different. That's the—that's the that's the, um, the the downside of this because every injury needs a specific type of repair. So, say you have a nerve entrapment, we do our our releases, uh, do steroid shots. If we uh, there's this hydrodissection, I don't do that. I don't know if you do that. Uh, um, yeah, very user dependent. But then, obviously, with any type of um, neuropathy, like. Uh, Diabetes-induced diabetes, you know, lupus, um, post-chemo, mononeuropathies, idiopathic hereditary neuropathies. We've had good success with the supplements. Yeah, supplements yeah. are great. Uh, yeah. Gabapentin and Lyrica are great, but they don't actually fix the problem. Yeah, they That's stabilize. The they stabilize the nerve itself. So yeah. what they're doing is they're they're raising the threshold for, for the that nerve, nerve to be response. irritable. Yeah, so, there's so that a, can be helpful. Yeah, yeah, and people don't understand that Lyrica. It, it's a pre, it's a prodrug, so it's pregabalin, so it goes through your liver and becomes gabapentin. Yeah, I think the advantage of Lyrica is that it's absorbed by the duodenum, so it's absorbed by your gut, a different area of the gut. But that's really the only reason I switch somebody from gabapentin to Lyrica. When the gabapentin's kind of if, if being less effective, out, if they're doing thirty six hundred milligrams a day and yeah. it's not making them a zombie, and they're not getting benefit from the drug, mm -hmm. the chances are it's just going right through them. They're yeah. not absorbing it. So that's somebody that I'll switch to Lyrica. But I, 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 it's very rare that I will start somebody off on Lyrica without trying gabapentin first. Because yeah. again, Lyrica becomes gabapentin. That's that's the actual active ingredient. Yeah, uh, real simple. We're trying to treat the problem. I mean, nothing too crazy here. Um, and then obviously, if you've been watching our lectures, watching our slides and stuff, we talk about each of these problems individually. We're doing a couple of nerve releases, a couple of tarsal tunnels, mm -hmm. and uh, I think we've recorded and, and hopefully gotten them published, if not hopefully soon. And um, I mean, as far as treatment for nerve problems go, we'll talk about them. You know, if you have questions, concerns, reach out to us. And and we really use a, a, a comprehensive approach. So if, yeah. somebody, if somebody has a known entrapment, yeah. And let's say that we're catching it pretty early. They don't have motor symptoms. Their balance is still reasonably good, but they're getting burning and tingling that only bothers them when they're trying to go to sleep. 
yeah, exertional or, or, or just at just, the end of the day, when yeah, all the, your, your brain's not focused or your, your brain's not focused on doing all the other things. You don't have stimuli. It can, it can focus on the neuritic pain, right? Yeah. That's somebody that we can try the supplements with first, maybe a low dose of gabapentin. Yeah. And that might give them enough relief that they're like, okay, I'm good. I don't need to mess with this. Yeah. But then you've got the patient who's got early motor symptoms. Maybe they're starting to get hammer toes. Yeah. They've got atrophy. Alex they've got pain. They, oh God forbid! If they have foot yeah. drop, they're they're pretty advanced, and that you know that's the patient that we need to be a little more aggressive with. The other thing about the diabetic version of this is if, if there's a way that we can decompress those nerves and prevent ulceration. Yeah, it's well known there's going to be compression. You can drop a recurrent ulcer problem from 25 to 30 percent per patient down to three to five yeah, percent by amazing. decompressing those branches that yeah. are affecting the bottom of the foot. So. There's a huge, I think there's a huge population of patients who would benefit from neurolysis or, or decompression of the tibial nerve mm -hmm. purely because they've had an ulcer. They're already heading down that path. And we've seen that happen. Unfortunately, there are some patients who only had one side done, and the side that they didn't have done is the they one that gets ulcerated all yeah. the time. So catching these folks early is a huge benefit, especially if you can do that surgery and decompress. And again, we've talked about this study that is being done at UT Southwestern yeah. with the plastics department, and it's an ongoing, you know, ten-year study. They're still culling data out of this, and hopefully, they'll publish several more papers. But all of the preliminary data was really um, pointing it is very promising, pointing in the direction that nerve decompression is a valuable tool in your armamentarium for dealing with. Uh, these nerve-related complications from diabetes. So yeah, especially when you go in there and you open them, you literally see where that 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 retinaculum, that ligament, whatever it might have been, pressing down on that nerve. You can it, find those choke points. Yeah, you oh, literally yeah. see it's like pressed down, almost like if you took like a mozzarella stick and you squished it. You know, it, it's it's amazing. Yeah. And you you release that tissue, and a lot of times it's very fibrotic because it's been glycosylated. So the yeah. all the blood sugars are causing tissues like ligamentous tissues to get stiffer. You know, that, that's a huge problem. When the tunnel's getting stiffer and the nerve is getting swollen, yeah. that's a bad combo. So you, you can't really do anything about the nerve getting swollen. We haven't figured that out yet. The, yeah. physi Unless, the physiology yeah, yeah. behind that the physiology behind that has not been discovered fully yeah. yet. You have to have phenomenal diabetes control for a long period of time to even have something you know, remotely. And, and even then, you can still have swelling of the nerve. Yeah. And, and that's not something we figured out yet. But we can make the tunnel bigger. Yeah. And by making the tunnel bigger... We can offload the nerve and, and often see tremendous improvement in both conductivity of the nerve, sensation, motor improvement, and then a, a pre prevention of ulcers. I mean, I think that's really most important. Those ulcers are as dangerous as colon cancer. Anything yeah. we can do to prevent them is, is huge. Well, very nice. That was uh, I think that was a great uh, primer on peripheral nerve and some of the things that we see in the office and, and are trying to do to prevent worsening of the pathology. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Singh. Great job. And we will see you guys next time on The Pod Doctors. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.